Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Uh, Led Zeppelin's Kashmir, a musical and metaphorical drive towards some irresistible far-off horizon, has long enticed me with its melodic mysticism. So when former guest Dave Stamboulis told me that he'd, quote, just completed a rather wild journey to Kashmir and Ladakh, I knew that we had to have him back on the show to tell us more about these spectacular areas of India, a country we've been eager to explore more on Talk Travel Asia. I'm Trevor Ranges in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and joined once again by Scott Coates in Bangkok, Thailand. Hey, Scott, how's it going today? Good, Trevor. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I thank you very much for teeing up Dave. He was on an episode a long time ago. And Lay and Ladakh have been really high on my list for a long time. And uh, yeah, I've known a couple people to go skiing and snowboarding in uh, Kashmir. So yeah, I'm quite excited to talk about these two things. Wow. Yeah, I never even imagined. I know this is like high Himalayan mountain country near Tibet. Uh, there's monasteries, there's spectacular wildlife. Um, you know, it just, it, it conjures up exotic images. Um, so I, I'm not surprised that there would be skiing up there as well. Um, but you know, we haven't covered India often on the show and uh, I have never traveled there myself. Um, so I'm kind of eager to, to get to learn more about these areas of, of northern India. Had you traveled to India before? Have you ever studied visiting some of these places? I've only been to Mumbai twice, uh, once to update a guidebook map and the other time for a happiness conference. But, you know, I did look at going to Leh and driving up there with my dad the other year. Uh, there was a few logistics and things that I thought wouldn't work more for him. I would love to motorbike up there sometime. And Leh is more Tibetan. It's Indian, but I think it's Tibetan in, in sort of culture and, and so forth. So I'd love to get there in Kashmir. No, not really, man. Like I've known a few people to go. I know there's some beautiful lakes. I believe people spend some time on houseboats up there. And of course, you know, there's a long standing conflict in the area. But I mean, like Kashmir, is there a spot with a more mystical name? than that I, I don't think so so both of these places like ladakh and the capital of Leh and kashmir they both i mean they they conjure up really magical images to me yeah you know i mean more of my knowledge may come from the geopolitical significance of the region perhaps um and and this area of northern india is where the country borders pakistan and tibet uh china and uh, it, it's been very important for centuries. I mean, these are some of the great trade routes across Asia pass through these these areas uh, of the southern Himalaya. And uh, not the southern Himalaya, maybe, but this, the southern 
side of the Himalaya, right? But uh, because of these conflicts, uh, the Chinese authorities uh, closed the borders between Tibet and Ladakh in the 1960s. And then since the 1970s, you know, India has has tried to encourage tourism to the region, but there's always something going on up there, it seems, between these disputing border countries. Uh, So maybe it's not a place that uh, people had considered traveling before because because of these problems, uh, but uh, yeah, wanna, you know, do you know much about the history at all? I don't, man. I, I ashamedly don't. I know that. I think in in Kashmir, you know, I did uh, have a look at Wikipedia and stuff, and I think the British East India Company uh, ruled Kashmir from like 1846 to 1858. It said, and you know, there was the partition of India in 47, where I think all these sort of new borders happened, and then there's just been kind of ongoing conflict here and there and it's been safe at one times and not others i did read that uh you know it's got apparently the world's highest green golf course which is one and there's flower gardens and apple orchards so i think in Kashmir you get a, a mix of a bit of all of it and i think from what i've seen of ladakh is that that it is super high it's super arid it's super dry. It's kind of like little Tibet, right? It's an, an attractive tourist destination. And I think they may even have better remaining examples of Tibetan Buddhism and cultural than maybe you would even get in, in Tibet itself. So, I mean, these are far-flung areas in India. And, you know, you always hear India is a, is a massive, smallish country. And, yeah, you kind of get into the Himalayas there and you realize... 100 or 200 kilometers as the crow flies and things are really, really different. So I'm, I'm quite keen on this one. Yeah, you know, again, I'm always looking at the the Google map and checking out these areas, and I did a little research too, and uh, it, it's been inhabited since Paleolithic times, mm. and you mentioned like the, the ancient Buddhist uh, cultures and practices. Uh, yeah, it seems like whether it's history or, or culture or wildlife, uh, there's a lot of spectacular stuff up there. So I'm looking forward to, to Dave shedding a little light on it for us. And just before we bring in Dave, thank you to our patrons. These are people that sponsor the show from a couple dollars a month upwards, depending on how much love they have for us. What do they get in between? They get a special bonus episode where we riff on a hot topic going on in the region or we share a video. I shared a video recently of a trip to northern Thailand, cycling Pre and going to Pitsanalok. And I got to throw a shout out to Laura T. Thank you, Laura T and other patrons for your support. So click on donate, help the show, help keep the travel talk going. Let's get into it with Dave. When we recently thought of inviting former guests back on the show to see what they've been up to in the years since they last appeared as guests, Dave Stambolis was near the top of our list. A freelance photographer and travel writer based in Asia since the 1990s, Dave was eager to come back on and regale us with his travel tales, including his wild journey to Kashmir and Ladakh, two regions of India we have yet to discuss on Talk Travel Asia. Dave joins us today from Bangkok, Thailand. How are you doing today, Dave? Hey, Trevor. How's it going? Happy to be back on the show and to talk travel as always. Yeah, we figured that uh, you'd probably been up to some interesting stuff in a while. And when Scott and I came up with this idea for the show, it was kind of to keep in touch with each other and keep our network alive. So we figure, yeah, we should touch base with some people. And uh, it seems like you've been up to some interesting things. Yeah, I, I guess uh, to, before we get started or before we I launch into anything about Kashmir or Ladakh, I should probably give a quick 
synopsis as to how I got here. Um, as we were talking before we came on the air, you know, my wife and I went to South America for a year in 2018 with the plan to travel from Patagonia all the way to Colombia. And we succeeded, except that at the very end, we decided that Cuba was so close that we'd jump over to Cuba for a week or two. And while we were in Cuba, COVID happened. And we ended up pretty much getting locked out of everywhere. All of our stuff was still in Colombia. Uh, we managed to get a flight to Miami. And in so doing, we lost all of our gear. So while we were in Miami, we, you know, all this new ultralight travel and trekking equipment was coming out in the U.S. So we started buying gear to replace all the things we'd lost, tent, sleeping bag, and other stuff. Once we, we collected this gear, we realized we need to go and try to use this. And, you know, all this time we were trying to come back to Thailand, but as, as you guys know, Thailand was extremely locked down during COVID, and we couldn't get back in. We no longer had our long-term visas to come back. Uh, so we ended up going and walking the Colorado Trail, which is a 30-day trip across Colorado to see how we liked the, the lightweight gear and, and how we liked something known as through hiking. And we really enjoyed it. And so the following year, we did the Arizona Trail. And Thailand still remained close to us. And we followed that up by doing the biggie last year, which was deciding to walk from Mexico to Canada on the Pacific Crest Trail, <laughs> which is a 5,000-some-kilometer trail all the way across the western states of the U.S. And doing that probably changed our lives pretty significantly uh, and really also opened us up to all sorts of new adventures and new ideas and new ways of doing adventures. And that's kind of what eventually brought us to here now. And we did finally come back to Thailand a year ago and got reestablished and now are doing some journeys here in Asia. Damn. Dave, that is some crazy hiking. And I wish uh, North America was in Asia. We could talk to you about that uh, hike you did up the West Coast of uh, America. Incredible. <laughs> well, look, Dave, before we get into uh, Ladakh and Kashmir, for people that aren't really familiar with you, could you give us just a, a quick background? Like, who is Dave Stromboulos? Where are you originally from? When did you first come to Asia? What do you do? I'm a, a Greek-born, American-raised, uh, grew up in Berkeley, California. And m my initial okay. love of things outdoors was with a bicycle. Uh, I spent seven years in the 1990s riding a bicycle around the world. And I then wrote a book about the trip. And I also documented the trip. And the book ended up being pretty successful, and that kind of launched me on a travel writing and photography career. And I started coming to Thailand, I, actually on that bike trip. I came to Thailand for the first time in the mid-1990s and really enjoyed myself and ended up coming back multiple times. Then when I finished the bike trip, I started dividing my time between the U.S. and Thailand. And eventually in 2005, I moved here for good. Pretty much have been working as a travel writer and photographer since then, um, continuing with you know my passion for wild adventures. And at some point, you know, the bicycling became trekking, and that's kind of been the focus of, of most of my journeys over the past years. Bloody incredible. 
Okay. And, uh, you know, we did a little intro and talked a bit about the episode that you were on with us before. So I think people have a pretty good idea that you're quite the adventurer. So let's get into this particular trip, which you said you did quite recently. What, what inspired it? Like, had it been like planned for a while and just kept getting put off or was it a spontaneous decision to, to make this trip to India? Uh, how did this come about? Well, there, there were a few things behind it. Um, during my bike trip way back when, I had ridden a bicycle through Kashmir. And in the 1990s, Kashmir was not a very safe place. Uh, you know, they've always had struggles over Kashmir's wanting independence, and there's been separatism violence there. Pakistan and India are at loggerheads over Kashmir. And for years, Kashmir kind of just became a no-go. Uh, in the in the 90s, there were some Western trekkers who were kidnapped there, and eventually Kashmir just became sealed off. And then maybe five, six, seven years ago, the situation stabilized, and they had elections, and and most importantly, Indian domestic tourists started to return to Kashmir. And once that happened, you know, uh, Srinagar, the capital, is very famous for its big lake called Dal Lake, where people rent old English British Raj houseboats to stay on. And that became a big draw again. Hmm. And then the trekking started to open up. And the flip side of that, um, during our, our world trip in 2018, we had been in Ladakh. And Ladakh is one of my favorite places as it's a high desert with big mountains, uh, Tibetan culture. And although a lot of Indians now ride motorcycles from the plains of India all the way up to Ladakh, and while the roads into Ladakh have continued to be built and there's more infrastructure, it's still a place where you can easily get off the beaten path and have some really wild adventures. And so two things kind of came together. Uh, number one, a group of friends of ours decided they wanted to join us in Ladakh. So with a big group, we were able to put together a team complete with horses and guides and cooks and plan an expedition down a wild river valley. And then the second one was, uh, you know, India's now got this burgeoning trekking movement with all sorts of young Indians taking to the outdoors. And we found an Indian travel company that was running a trip in Kashmir that they claimed was the most beautiful place in India. And we Googled some photos of this place and looked at it a bit and thought, wow, that looks spectacular, and decided this would be a great contrast between two relatively nearby places because Ladakh is very dry and barren. It's, in the, it's on the other side of the monsoon shadow, so it doesn't get much rain normally, whereas Kashmir is lush, green, verdant, and so we thought it would be really cool to trek from the big high desert area over and down into the wet green. Dave, I mean, you paint a great picture. There's why we had you on again, because not only can you write and ride a bike, but you can tell a story really well. So maybe which of these two places did you go first? How did you get there and arrange it? And what was the plan? We started off by flying to Lay, which ideally one doesn't want to do because Ley is at 3,000 and almost 600 meters. I believe it's the second highest airport okay. in the world after 
La Paz in Bolivia. So anyway, we, we flew into Ley and, you know, you, we, way back in my, I used to do some mountaineering and back in my mountaineering days, someone once told me that ginkgo biloba, the natural herb, is a very good uh, something to take before you go to high altitude to help with the acclimatization process. So given that we were going to fly directly from Delhi to Leh, coming from Bangkok, which is sea level, uh, we took some ginkgo in Bangkok before we left. And then we got to Leh and we, we took it real easy the first, first few days. Had a bit of a headache, but nothing too serious. And we met all of our friends there. And I had been looking at several years ago when we were in Ladakh, there is a valley, and a river valley called the Tsarabchu. And the Sarabchu is one of three or four immense rivers that flows out of the glaciers in Ladakh and flows all the way down to Zanskar, which is a former kingdom that sits kind of smack in the middle of Ladakh and Kashmir. And so we started out from Leh and transported back towards Manali on the, the Leh to Manali Highway. And then about halfway, we got off the bus and met our porters or our, our guides and our horses. And we started walking down the Tsarabchu on a planned trip that was going to take us about a week to get to Padam, which is the main city in Zanskar. And then we were going to resupply and take a couple days off. And then from Padam, we were going to continue back to the north heading towards the Kanjila, which is a 5,000 meter pass, which would then put us over onto the Ley at Srinagar Highway and make for a, not a loop, but a, a very complete trek. Going through some, you know, Ladakh has had some, a lot of road building over the past few years. So a lot of the places on what were the old classic trekking routes are now gone. There's now a road there, hmm. there's no more trail. Um, so we had looked for places where the roads weren't, and that was the plan to do this trek through untraveled terrain. That's some pretty pretty long distances. So you're traveling primarily by horse, you said. Is that the the, the main means and and hiking horse and hiking? No, no, we're traveling by we're traveling on foot. The horses just carry all of our stuff. Ah, yeah, and then the horses just go slowly at your walking speed, yeah. Uh, the horses actually go pretty fast, and what would happen would be that the horses would start later than us, and then they'd pass us somewhere in the middle of the day. And then they would, the you know, we had a big kitchen tent, some other stuff, and so the horses would pass us, and the horse guys and the cooks would set up the tent and get food cooking, and then our party would just continue at our own pace and then roll into camp in the late afternoon. Okay, so maybe then instead of like, you know, this isn't necessarily going to be a how-to guide for a lot of people. Uh, maybe the best way to approach it for the show is kind of tell us what like the average day is like. Like, what was that first day like? Like, what does your day consist of? I mean, you're just walking, but you're seeing some uh, wildlife along the way. Are you encountering uh, local people walking in the opposite direction? Uh, you know, do, is the lunch break, uh, you know, something you packed? Or do you stop in, in, in the town or something? What's, what's the day like? You know, some people have this notion of like doing the, the, these type of treks that you got to be really hardcore. And while, yes, I mean, there are some, there was some technical terrain on this trip, which I'll get into a little more detail. 
But the the nice thing about doing a trek like this with a group and a, and a supported group is that number one, you don't have to carry all your stuff. So you're not carrying a huge pack with all sorts of gear in it. You, you know, you pretty much have a day pack. And then you've got horses which carry your sleeping bags, your tents, all your extra warm clothing, you know, any stuff you need for camp, uh, electronics. And then you, you just walk during the day and then you arrive in camp in the afternoon and your stuff is all set up and waiting for you. The terrain in Ladakh and is such that we're not out there doing huge mileage every day, but the days are long because these valleys, the trails run up above very steep rivers and they're quite precipitous. There's a lot of landslide activity. Uh, they're old goat trails. In the old days, the Ladakhis used these trails regularly, but with many roads going into Ladakh, some of these trails are, are really falling into disrepair and they're not used that much anymore. So that makes it harder for trekking. And then a, a very big consideration which played into this year was that, as with everywhere else in the world, climate change is wreaking havoc. And the monsoon rains got over into Ladakh quite significantly this year. So we had quite a good number of days of bad weather which led to the rivers being swollen. And we had a couple river crossings where we needed to use ropes and harnesses to get across the river. Uh, and then ultimately, as we went into the second week of the trip, we hit a section where the horses could not cross one river because it was flowing so fast. And we ultimately had mm -hmm. to bail out at that point. So we had to end this part of the trek about three days early. So a normal day out on the trek, we'd get up around seven in the morning, you'd have coffee. Uh, we happened to have these two chefs who were incredible, you know, in the middle of nowhere at 4,000 plus meters, they're making pancakes, pizza, all sorts of good stuff. So they'd cook a big breakfast and then they'd give us a packed lunch for the day because we're pretty much out on, on our own on the trail. And then we'd walk for two, three hours take a break, uh, continue on and find a good lunch spot. Uh, maybe three or four of the days we're crossing big passes. So we usually try to get to the top of a pass before we have lunch. And then, as I said, you know, the, the days are not that long. The trail is not that, we're not doing big mileage. We're just having a lot of terrain to cover, lots of rocks, you know, not a smooth trail. So then we try to get into camp around 3 p.m., have a snack, wash up, get our stuff in order, and get ready for the next day. we got a lot of stuff to cover here, Dave, and I've been to the Himalayas and Nepal as well as Tibet. Bit of a tough question, but what makes Ladakh Ladakh and sort of, yeah, what makes it different than other Himalayan destinations? Hmm. That's, that's a good question. Well, number one, there are sections of the Himalayas that are high desert, but the majority of them are found in Tibet on the other side of the Himalayas. So, and, and you know, as you know, Tibet is a, a hard place to get into. It requires permits and you have to go with a guide and a liaison. 
and the Chinese aren't all too friendly about what you're going to see or hear or do, and very controlling. So Ladakh remains, you know, it, it's a Tibetan culture. Uh, it's a Tibetan Buddhist culture. And you get to have all of that, and yet you're in India, where you pretty much can go and do as you please. The other big plus is that for Ladakh, you know, Ladakh was very big amongst European trekkers back in, say, the 90s. Uh, there was a route from Lama Yuru that went all the way across Ladakh that was considered like the classic Ladakh trekking route. It took about 20 days, and it started down in a place near Manali, uh, and then it went all the way up across Ladakh and finished at this big monastic complex called Lama Yuru. That is now a road. They've put a road in pretty much through all of that section. So that trek is gone. Ladakh also changed with all of the domestic tourism in the past years. They now cater much more to an Indian market. Much of the Indian market comes to do Jeep tours, motorcycle tours. So the trekking scene in Ladakh has kind of dwindled and is pretty much limited to just the Marka Valley, which is a, a nearby valley to lay that you can do in about six days, and it's got homestays, while the rest of Ladakh remains remote and untamed. Not to mention that you have a lot of disappearing culture because many of the villages are getting roads, which is changing the face of the villages. Uh, many of the younger people are moving away from the villages now. And so it's kind of one of the last bastions of the Himalayas, where you can see traditional culture, have an incredible trekking experience in a really wild place. Okay. Um, what, what are maybe some of the highlights? What, what are your, like, you take photos, I guess, along the way? Maybe what's the best photo spot or memory? Kind of what stuck with you the most or maybe impressed you the most that you weren't expecting from having been there before? So terrain-wise, this was a really incredible trek. One of the, the, sure, one of the highlights was getting down to a confluence of rivers. We were walking down the Tsarabchu, which is this beautiful glacial-fed turquoise river, and we reached another river called the, uh, the oh, the Tsarabchu, I'm sorry. So we reached a confluence with the Tsarabchu, and the Tsarabchu was swollen deep, wide, and fast. And I looked at it and I thought, there's no way we can get across this thing. But our guide and the horsemen went across and they strung a rope across. They, they belayed us across the river. And once we got across this, I mean, one, there was an incredible feeling of accomplishment. But what was even more incredible was that the next day, we had two days of bad weather. And we had to wait. We took one day off in camp because we were going over two 5,000-meter passes. And we had to make a decision at that point about whether to go or not. But we realized, given the rains, that we probably wouldn't have been able to return the way we came. So we decided to cross the pass. And we went over these passes in a snowstorm. And it was a difficult crossing, but as we crested the second pass, it started to clear a little bit. And, you know, everything was covered in snow and mist. And then we started to see the big peaks on the other side. And it was a, a memorable sight. 
The other big surprise and, and great memory on this trip, uh, which was very interesting, we got to a village called Lingshed. And Lingshed is a village that has a road now into it. And it's considered to be one of the most picturesque villages in Ladakh. It's got these beautiful green, lush green fields set down below, you know, these barren, dry mountains. It's like an oasis. And you come down and they're growing barley. And there's a big monastery there with a, with a large population of monks. And the day we arrived, there was a celebration going on. And it turned out that there was a Rinpoche who is considered to be a, a reincarnated Lama. And this particular Rinpoche, I believe, is the second or third highest Rinpoche after the Dalai Lama. And he had come from southern India to give a talk. And we just happened to be there the night before and the, and the, day, the next day when he was giving the talk. And we got to camp basically right next to the monastery. And what was funny is when we arrived, the, the normal place where trekkers would camp there was closed during, due to this event. So they stuck us up out on what is a helicopter landing strip, which was built for the Dalai Lama when he talked there several years ago. And when we arrived in the afternoon, it was very hot and it was dry, and they give us this, you know, this concrete landing strip to camp on, and we all kind of moaned and groaned about it. But then the evening came, and we had a beautiful sunset. You know, where they set up our table and chairs out on the runway with this beautiful view, and the next day we got to go and see the Rinpoche speak, and so that was a very, very wonderful surprise and kind of an unforgettable part of the trip. What a story, Dave. And we could talk to you for hours just on this one. But we've promised in this same episode, Kashmir, I'm not sure why we did both now. But um, so you decide to go to Kashmir. Did this trip follow immediately? Or when did you go? And how did you end up putting that one together? So we had about two weeks off after the first trek. And I, I think our plan was that we'd now be in great shape and acclimatized and we'd come back to Lay and just, you know, go running up and down mountains near Lay for a couple weeks. And of, of course that didn't happen. Uh, we came back, Lay now has a burgeoning coffee culture scene. You can get nice pastries and eat good food. There's even a Japanese restaurant there now. And so we had a couple weeks off and we had planned to fly to Srinagar and unfortunately, the airline we had booked tickets on went bankrupt. So we ended up taking a Jeep, uh, which is also a fabulous story. But you travel through, you know, this bone dry terrain over the mountains and down into Kashmir. Then we met up with our Indian group and began this trek to Kashmir. And they call this trek a crossover trek because the trek actually starts in Zanskar. And you're still in these very high and dry valleys. And Zanskar is kind of a mixed area in between Ladakh and, and Kashmir. The area that we started this trek is mainly inhabited by Muslims. And then when you, you know, you go further into Zanskar towards Padam, where we had finished the first trek, and then the valleys all become Buddhist. 
So we started in this very high and dry terrain, and we then started climbing over towards a glacier to take us to lower Kashmir. Um, something I should interject about this trek, which really made the trek. On the first day, we met, we had a guide, and then we also had a technical guide because this, this trek crosses a glacier. This technical guide started to introduce himself to the group, and he spoke in Hindi because he said he could barely speak English. We then started to find out a bit more about him, and it turns out that this guy had been trekking in the mountains since he was eight years old. His father had been a horseman, and his father passed away when this guy was eight years old. And he took over the business and started bringing trekkers and being a porter, carrying the horse. He then learned about mountains and he started guiding. Uh, he started to learn about climbing mountains. So this, this guy has been to Camp 3 on Mount Everest. And we, we realized fairly quickly that we were in very, very, very good hands. And as he liked to tell us, he said, no college, but full knowledge. Yeah, that's a good one. And and you definitely want to be in good hands, I think, when you're uh, in some remote areas up in northern India there. You know, because I'm looking at, again, the Google Maps, and I'm looking at, like, K2 isn't that far. K2 is in the Ladakh region, I guess, yeah? And I'm wondering if you could, like, see that, or you're always, like, you catching glimpses of, like, these massive mountains in the distance somewhere when you can get above or around a, a valley, I guess. So when you're moving into Kashmir, you mentioned that... Uh, religiously, there's a big difference in, in the places you travel to. What about other things like the, the food or the language? Was it a big shift going from the, the one region to the other in every, every different way? Yes, they do speak different languages. I mean, the Ladakhis speak Ladakhi, which is close to Tibetan. And then you cross into Kashmir, and they're either speaking Kashmiri which probably is close to Urdu in Pakistan, or also close to Balti. Balti is the region just north of Ladakh and Kashmir, which is in Pakistan. And actually, K2, which is the second highest peak in the world, yes, if you look at a map, it's basically just up the road. It's a stone's throw away, but it's in another country, and you can't get there. So K2's on the other side of the border in Pakistan, in, in, the, in a part of Pakistan known as Baltistan. And then we're on the other side in Kashmir, and then before that in Ladakh. Uh, Food-wise, when you're in Ladakh, they eat things that are, are found on Tibetan menus, such as momos, which are steamed dumplings stuffed with meat or vegetables. Uh, these big, rich soups and stews like tukpa, which is made of usually handmade noodles that are very thick. Uh, they use barley a lot because of the high altitude. And then when you get into Kashmir, you know, Kashmir is very, very famous for its food. Uh, Kashmir, it, it's the, they do this feast called Kashmiri Wazwan, uh, which is com comprised of all sorts of very heavy meat dishes. They do a lot of mutton, a lot of very thick curries. The interesting thing was that when we did the Indian, uh, the Kashmiri trip, uh, the, the group that put it together, the Indian group, they offered vegetarian food. 
So on that trip, we were pretty much eating dalbat for a week solid. And then when we would, at the end, when we got into town and when we went to Srinagar, we had a lot of Wazwan cuisine and, and rich Kashmiri food. Okay, Dave. Fantastic. So how long were you in Kashmir and can you pull and share a few of the highlights of your time there? Yeah, Scott. So the the second trek through Kashmir was nine days. This trek in many ways was much, much easier than the first trek. Uh, the days were not as long. Uh, the terrain was much more forgiving. We were with a group that was, I mean, it was a bigger group. We had nine people. It was probably a little bit slower. So in many ways, it was more leisurely. But I'll put a very big butt on that, a major exception. Uh, as I had mentioned earlier, they call this a crossover trek because you go from the dry of Zanskar to the green of Kashmir. And to get to the Warwan Valley, you have to cross a glacier called the Bracken Glacier. The Bracken Glacier is one of the biggest glaciers I've ever seen. It reminded me mm. of glaciers I'd seen in Patagonia. And the day you cross a pass and cross this glacier is about 15 hours, and it's an incredibly brutal day. So you start at about four o'clock in the morning. You spend most of the morning climbing up the pass. And then in order to reach the pass, and then even after the pass, you're walking on a glacier, and much of this glacier is covered by moraine, which is where rock and debris has covered what used to be snow. The glaciers are all receding, but it's very, very hard terrain to walk on because there's no trail. And there are places where, you know, you kind of have crevasses or you have holes where water rushes through large amounts of water, like rivers. And so we, we had a lot of difficulty with route finding because there's no proper trail through this. So it's, it's very painstaking. Hmm. Uh, you're walking on, on rocks and, and terrain where it would be very, very easy to twist an ankle. So you have to take it slow and kind of watch every step. And so it's a very, very, very long day. Uh, that, the flip side of the long day was that we just had the most incredible views up on the glacier. What was interesting is at the end of it, the Indian group, many of whom are somewhat new to trekking. I mean, they've trekked a lot in India, but not overseas. And, and they kind of knew about my trekking repertoire. And they asked me, how does this trek rank, you know, on your list of great treks? And I said, you know, what we did today was pretty much akin to what you would do if you went on a mountaineering expedition, with the exception of just not climbing the peak. A very, very hard approach, very dramatic, a lot of hard work, a lot of exertion. By far and away, that while that day was the highlight of the trek, what was even greater is once we finished getting off of this glacier and down, we entered the Warwan Valley, which is this giant, vivid, technicolor green valley that has no technical entry or exit point other than coming via the way we did on the glacier. And then the valley flows all the way down and eventually goes into a, the Warwan River. 
and there's no exit or entry at the other end, there is one road that leads to a high pass about three quarters of the way down, which was the way we exited. So this place is very, very remote. And yet once you're down in the Warwan Valley, there are small villages with Gujari shepherds who bring their flocks up to graze. And then these small Gujar Muslim villages that were very, very welcoming because there are very, very few tourists that are passing through here. And as I said, the, the scenery was just sublime. It was right out of a painting with plenty of wildflowers and, and especially coming from all the high and dry to see this almost Switzerland-like green with beautiful rivers that was very spectacular. Yeah, you know, obviously you need to be really fit, and uh, it's good that you prefaced this uh, story today with talking about your hiking from south to north on an entire continent <laughs> in South America. So, like, clearly you're, like, conditioned for doing these types of adventures where, like, most of us couldn't necessarily just pick up and, and go and do this, especially as you're saying, like, uh, you know, you you need to, I guess, be accompanied by some people that uh, could help you out if you did twist an ankle or something like that. You know, maybe towards the destination end of this trip, were there any places where, you know, somebody could have a more accessible experience in this part of Kashmir? Um, I mean, you definitely could access some of these areas without going over the pass and doing the glacier part. You, you could drive in from Srinagar. You take a day driving from Srinagar up over this pass down to a, a village called, uh, I think the last road access village was Suknai. You can drive pretty much up to Suknai and then you could get out and just spend several days walking up this beautiful green valley to have the experience of, of being in the Warwan. And I, I guess the other thing, you know, again, I should stress, um, I mean, most of the people on our second trek were, they, they work full time. They try to do some, you know, obviously you, you gotta do some kind of conditioning before you go out there, at least to give yourself a fighting chance. Uh, but, you know, most of the Indian trekkers would, they'd go to the gym a few times a week, uh, one thing they did have us do with this particular outfit we went with, which I think was a great idea, they had everyone send, you had to take a screenshot from an app in which you were able to run 10 kilometers in 60 minutes. And while that certainly isn't like a marathon or a record setting time, it's a good enough time to ensure that you just have basic fitness. And I think the thing behind most of these treks is that, yes, you should have some basic fitness when you go out there. But secondly, you know, plan your days so that they're not crazy long. Have a buffer day or a break day here or there. You know, make sure to take it easy. And then the rest of it is, is pretty much mental. It's just learning how to, you know, keep it in your mind. The body's going to adapt. The body's going to get over the the pains and the bumps, but it's kind of the mind that keeps going at the end of the day. So Dave, this is fascinating. I said it earlier, we could talk to you for hours, but um, just to kind of learn a bit more about Dave, what is next on Dave's adventures or what is Dave up to in the coming months? Well, my wife and I are going to Taiwan for a month 
in November. A place we've long had on our list and have never gotten to. My reading and research has told me that Taiwan has something like 150 peaks that are over 3,000 meters. And evidently, Taiwan is this hiking crazy, outdoor loving, mad place that nobody knows about, except for the Taiwanese and those who have been there. So we, we've got a pretty busy month scheduled there. And then I think the next big adventure we're looking at is maybe going back to Nepal next spring with the idea of doing a circuit around Kanchenjunga, which is mm. the third highest peak in the world. Wow. Hey, you know what? That's good news, though, because, again, like we could probably still do a whole episode on one of these mm. two regions of India. You'd mentioned a couple other things you'd been up to over the past seven years. And, and with all of these uh, other little adventures going on, we'll look back to have you on again to to talk about something else that you've been up to. region. Yeah, thanks a ton, Dave, for sharing these truly, truly wild tales. I have a website, which is www.davestamboulis.com, just my name spelled out. And I don't post too much new stuff on there, but mm -hmm. it's got a link on there to my Flickr account. And I usually put a, a best of photo album from each trip linked to my Flickr account. And that's also got a link to my Facebook page, and I post some stuff there now and then. I hope you'll share that with us. And then uh, we look forward to having you on the show again uh, somewhere down the road. So uh, safe travels, happy trails, and uh, hope to have a beer with you sometime soon. Yes. Yow. Uh, wow. You know, that was a tough one for me to follow along on the map because he really did visit some pretty remote areas. You know, like he's saying there's not some roads to these places and the, the horses can't even cross some rivers. So like to, for me to find these places on Google Maps was pretty tricky. Um, but it's it's amazing to, to hear of people's adventures doing things like this in such spectacular areas. And uh, I hope Dave can help us update that map so that uh, people can have a look at uh, some of the places that he visited. Well, I enjoy doing the show. Sometimes I do find it kind of painful because most episodes make me want to be super wealthy and just go traveling. And, you know, when I heard Dave talking about these big trekking expeditions, it took me back to my days kind of tour hosting in Nepal. And it makes me want to be rich and want to just be able to head off and travel and do these things. I mean, these are truly out there magical experiences. And one thing that kind of struck me with Ladakh particularly, and it makes sense because I saw it in Nepal to an extent, is that these trekking routes are, are being turned into roads and stuff. And while it sucks for travelers, I'm sure if you live somewhere very remote and all of a sudden they put in a, a decent quality road, it, it greatly improves your quality of life, but it also opens you up to the outside world. And, and that kind of changes the reason that we as travelers might go places. So I feel like with some of these places, if you wait too long, the whole experience might be gone. Yeah, you know, I, I could see that for maybe some of the more popular areas uh, near some of the airports near Leh, maybe. But I don't know. I think it might be a while, you know, <laughs> like it's, <laughs> you know, that like, again, there's so many other places that have still yet to get too much mass tourism. So I feel like this could still be one of those places where... Uh, 
people might still get to have some spectacular experiences if they're fit enough, right? Because this is at some high elevation and not all of it, but, uh, and some long distances you need like, again, a nine day trek or something. Maybe there's two days on each end, uh, for like the fly in fly out, but we're talking like about a week of nonstop walking and, and he's saying it was pretty tough. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I bet it's worth it if you, if you plan for it and you train for it and, uh, and you went and did it, I bet it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was a little surprised that they flew straight into Lay, but I guess you do what you got to do, but like flying into 3,600 meters. I know that when I went to Lhasa, Tibet, I think it was at 3,200, and, and it was pretty slow there for a couple days. Um, but yeah, you got to be in shape for a trek. I was a bit interested in the quality of the trails they were walking on, because when I've done these kind of treks in Nepal, they're pretty, you know, worn footpaths. That doesn't mean they're big or busy, but it sounded like a lot of what he was on was, you know, walking over rock beds and not particularly well broken trail, which made it really, really challenging. That glacier sounded pretty neat. And uh, yeah, I'm just super envious of the whole thing. I mean, you look at a Google map, I know you're going to put together a great one and that whole larger area, man, that is just kind of unknown unseen i guess except for people that live there but like damn those are some big remote wide open spaces so look i don't buy lottery tickets but if i ever win trevor you and i are just gonna go travel yeah i join you for this one that looks like a pretty awesome place i don't know what the best time of year to go is because there's a lot of frozen stuff up there there's like frozen waterfalls and you know i was gonna ask him about gear but uh, we didn't have time to talk about everything but uh yeah, with the extra clothes, you, I guess you need a horse if you're because you're gonna sweat while you're walking. But then I guess it gets cold at night, and uh, I don't know. You know, this is a pretty chilly country. I imagine this part of India. So uh, yeah, everybody, thanks for listening, uh, Scott. Thanks for joining me again today, mm-hmm. and uh, thanks to our patrons for supporting the show. You can go to the show notes on talktravelasia.com, check out the Google Map, check out some photos from Dave, and click on the donate button to uh, get the special episodes in between every other show and uh, to show your love, which we appreciate. Thanks for joining us on Talk Travel Asia. We look forward to sharing with you again soon. Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom in Cambodia?